Welcome to The Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We are the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 194 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, and it is Friday, July 15th, 2022. Coming up, what's the real story on the 10-year-old abortion victim in Indiana? Also, did Dr. Deborah Burks set out to destroy this country, and why aren't U.S. public health agencies following the science on the China virus? That and a whole lot more on the Information Overload Friday edition, this episode of the Doc Washburn Show. All right, just so you know where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to mention. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, when the story of the 10-year-old girl going across state lines from Ohio to Indiana to get an abortion came out, many outlets of the mainstream media bought the story hook, line, and sinker without asking for a shred of evidence for the same reason they buy many stories, hook, line, and sinker, without asking for a shred of evidence. It fit their worldview. It fit their narrative. Okay? And they wanted it to be true. I mean, I hope you don't still believe most mainstream media engages in actual journalism. No, 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 no. They are in the tank for the regime. So for the same reason the story made perfect sense to them, most of us rejected it out of hand. Why? The single source was an abortionist in Indiana, a woman who makes money murdering babies. She was clearly upset at the prospect of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe, possibly jeopardizing her ability to keep raking in all that blood money, so she had a vested interest in making up a story about a pregnant 10-year-old. And she certainly refused to do anything at all to back up her story. So the mainstream media accepted her word at face value because they see a baby murderer as being some kind of paragon of integrity and virtue while we see her for what she is. But now, it turns out there actually is something to the story. And wait till you hear why the abortionists didn't want to give us any details to verify it. Okay, we have a number of different sources on this. First of all, let's go to uh, Fox News. Thomas Catanacci over Fox News. Article entitled, Ohio 10-year-old's alleged illegal immigrant rapist, 27, was listed as minor in abortionist report to state. Here's what he says. The illegal immigrant from Guatemala, 
charged with raping and impregnating an Ohio 10-year-old who traveled to Indiana for an abortion, was listed as a minor in the report the Indiana-based abortionist sent to authorities, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, reported that the alleged rapist was approximately 17 years old in an official filing to the Indiana Department of Health obtained Thursday by Fox News Digital. On Wednesday, Ohio authorities charged 27-year-old Gerson Fuentes, an illegal immigrant from Guatemala, with rape of a minor under 13 years old in the case. Fuentes confessed to the crime to Columbia Police Department investigators, according to Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost in a statement that he made Wednesday. However, the 10-year-old's mother said her daughter was fine and everything they say about Gerson Flores is a lie when he was confronted Thursday by a reporter from Telemundo. Okay? So let's take a look at that. Jorge Bonilla, who is director of Latino News over at the Media Research Center and Newsbusters has the video of the reporter for Telemundo, news correspondent Maria Vargas Pion. And uh, man, it gets deep. She actually goes to the apartment where the mother and the little girl live. Okay. So we're getting ready to hear her conversation with the mother in Espanol, and I will translate it for you. So, Telemundo and Univision are the two big Spanish-speaking networks in North America including the U.S. And so here is here is uh, the reporter, the first soundbite, Maria Vargas Pion, Telemundo, trying to get the story out about this 10-year-old rape victim. Okay, she's saying, did the girl live here as well? Okay, so... That's the first clip. Okay. Here is the answer from the woman behind the apartment door that's barely cracked. She doesn't want her face on camera. Okay, let me translate. She says, yes, but she's fine. Everything that they're saying against him is a lie. Okay. Next clip. Okay, so the reporter says, okay, and the child, are you related to her or her mother? And the mother is speaking over her saying, yes, she's my daughter. 
Okay. So then, then we have a wrap, 25-second wrap, wrap-up from the reporter, Maria Vargas Pion of Telemundo. And it's, of course, it's all in Spanish. But I'm going to play it for you, and then I will translate it. I'll play it in case we have any folks who speak Espanol listening. 25 seconds long. Those of you who only speak English, it's it's no big deal. Spanish is a beautiful language. I'll play it, and then I will translate what the reporter is saying. La señora quien se negó a dar su nombre y quien ocultó su rostro asegura que ella no ha impuesto cargos en contra de Gerson Fuentes de 27 años quien está acusado de violación. De acuerdo a las autoridades, él confesó que tuvo contacto vaginal al menos dos veces con la niña que recientemente cumplió 10 años por lo que se estima que pudiera haber tenido 9 años cuando fue violada y quedó en embarazo. Okay, so here is what the reporter Maria Vargas Pion from Telemundo just said in her wrap-up of her television report there. She said, The woman who refused to provide her name and who concealed her face states that she had not filed charges. I guess 27-year-old Gerson Fuentes was charged with rape. According to the authorities, he confessed to having vaginal contact on at least two occasions with a girl who recently turned 10. Therefore, it is estimated she may have been nine years old when she was raped and then became, became pregnant. So this guy found guilty. I mean, they say he confessed. You know, he should be under the jail. So before I go back to what Fox News said about it, Jorge Bonilla over at Media Research Center, he says, this portion of a broader interview sheds significant light on the familial dynamics of this case and further vindicates all skepticism over how the story broke and was handled. We don't, we don't even get to this point without the critical work of Megan Fox, award-winning journalist and author and broadcaster, at PJ Media, and so many others. Jorge Bonilla says, This appears to confirm my thesis of a domestic situation wherein the confessed rapist is also the paramour, in other words, the live-in boyfriend, of the victim's mother. Other familial relation is possible, but less likely. Unfortunately, he says, I saw many such cases while working as a court interpreter myself. The mother's distressed defense of the rapist suggests that, A, she is also here in this country illegally and fears deportation. B, the defendant is the family's sole source of income. C, there is a likelihood of other children in the home. D, Mom is exposed to removal of the children under dependency proceedings, failure to protect. Has there been such a filing yet? And if not, why not? Jorge Bonilla continues other questions. What was the time gap between the initial reporting of the rape and the filing of criminal charges? Why did the referring abortion provider not report the rape to authorities was the child 
forced to live with her rapist in furtherance of an abortion narrative? Was the child compelled to stay quiet until after news of the abortion was leaked to the media? If so, how so? Was criminal reporting of the rape of a Latina girl suppressed or delayed in furtherance of a political agenda? These questions need to be answered. ASAP. Now let me remind you. Let let me remind you of a not unrelated story yesterday. U.S. Representative Chip Roy, Republican of Texas, was trying to get uh, trying to get federal sentencing guidelines upgraded to 15 years for child sexual trafficking, and every Democrat on the U.S. House Judiciary Committee voted against it. So what does that tell you? I mean, what does that tell you? All right, let me return to Fox News' reporting on this. Because we uh, we detoured a moment, because Jorge Bonilla, his thread of tweets with the reporting from Telemundo was embedded into the Fox News story. So, uh, Thomas Catanacci over Fox News continues his reporting here. He says, The alleged rape made headlines early this month after the abortionist Bernard told the Indiana Star on July 1st she had performed an abortion for a young rape victim who she said was forced to cross state lines from Ohio in order to receive the procedure. Ohio implemented a six-week abortion ban shortly after the Supreme Court overturned the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which granted women the federal right to an abortion. Abortionist Bernard told the Indy Star at the time, quote, It's hard to imagine that in just a few short weeks we will have no ability to provide that care, unquote referencing a potential similar abortion ban that could go into effect in Indiana following the high court's ruling. Now, wait, I thought they said they already implemented the six-week abortion ban. What do you mean a potential similar abortion ban? Oh, Ohio. Ohio implemented it. So she's thinking, well, what if Indiana does, and I, I have to stop making money killing babies. I get it. Okay. Following abortionist Bernard's comments, Joe Biden, who I will never call president, referenced the incident during a speech July 11th. And on July 3rd, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem was asked during a CNN interview whether she would force young victims of rape, quote, to have a baby, unquote. Well, they already have a baby. Okay, so. So. We're going to get to Biden 
Uh, first, we got Bill Hemmer, Fox News, and Mike Tobin, Fox News. They're reporting on this story, and then we go to Biden. Fox News alert now. Officials charge an illegal immigrant with rape in the case of a 10-year-old girl from Ohio who was taken to Indiana to get an abortion. Immigration authorities say that this man, Gerson Fuentes, is a Guatemalan national. He is here in violation of the law. Mike Tobin on that story in Chicago with more today. Mike, hello. The 27-year-old Guatemalan national, Bill, he has now been charged with rape of a 10-year-old girl. And this case, of course, has garnered national attention, even the attention of the White House, following the overturning of Roe versus Wade, because the little girl uh, had to travel out of state to terminate the pregnancy that resulted from her being raped. Now, according to court documents, detectives has testified in the case of Gerson Fuentes that he confessed to raping the girl on at least two occasions. Now, Ohio has a law that was while Roe versus Wade stood, that banned abortions as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. When Roe was overturned, the ban went into effect. When it was learned the little girl was pregnant in late June, the Indianapolis Star reports that she missed the deadline for the Ohio law by three days. So Children's Services in Ohio contacted an Indianapolis-based OBGYN, and the procedure was done. All right. So that's Bill Hemmer and Mike Tobin. Mike Tobin, um, long-time Stand-up reporter there on uh, on Fox, Bill Hemmer, longtime anchor on Fox. Used to be on CNN many, many years ago. So then uh, Dementia Joe exploits the uh, 10-year-old abortion victim. This isn't some imagined horror. It's already happening. Just last week, it was reported that a 10-year-old girl was a rape victim of high. 10 years old. And she was forced to have to travel out of the state to Indiana. Again, Biden didn't care if it was true or not. No, it was uh, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? And at the point he said it, it didn't make any sense to people who were trying to think it through until... the angle of the illegal alien alleged rapist, alleged boyfriend of her mother, and then it all made sense. We go back to a Bill Hemmer and Mike Tobin of Fox. The anti-abortion group Ohio Right to Life issued a statement, we failed by offering the Band-Aid solution of abortion that only added to the pain and violence perpetrated against her. The victim deserved better. I sources told our Bill Malusian that Fuentes entered the U.S. illegally, and there is now an ICE detainer uh, pending uh, for Fuentes. There is reporting that he had been in the U.S. for seven years, Material uh, from the Indianapolis clinic is now being analyzed to see if there's a positive DNA match for Fuentes. Mm. All right. So we got that. Now, uh, Megan Fox. Megan Fox. The remarkable reporter who was the one who broke all this, okay? She was on with Glenn Beck. And frankly, Glenn Beck said that she should win a Pulitzer because she's the one that broke all this stuff. So, Megan Fox 
has an update article. Came out a few hours ago on PJ Media entitled, Glenn Beck says that I should win a Pulitzer for breaking open Ohio illegal alien pedophile scandal. And I agree with Glenn Beck. She should win a Pulitzer. So we got more on that coming up. Um, also, also, don't forget, we also have the questions, why aren't U.S. public health agencies following the sci- science on the China virus? And what's the real story about Dr. Deborah Burks? Did she really set out to destroy this country? A lot more coming up on Information Overload Friday on this episode of the Doc Washburn Show. In the meantime, I can't say it strongly enough how much we appreciate our friends and advertisers who make it possible for us to do what we do on the Doc Washburn Show every day. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, And all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else, Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401K or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? 
No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thanks again to our friends and advertisers, Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones Financial and Mitch Ward at Red River Your Way. All right. So let's take a look at this article. Megan Fox is the journalist who broke this case wide open. When a lot of us were like, how can this be? Why should we believe an abortionist who says that, uh, you know, a 10-year-old girl came across state lines from Ohio to Indiana to get an abortion and she won't give any other details? So the article of PJ Media entitled, Glenn Beck says that I should win a Pulitzer for breaking open Ohio illegal alien pedophile scandal. By Megan Fox, she says, I'm not going to lie. Yesterday was not much fun after the left aimed both barrels at me for forcing the media to dig into a story that revealed that an illegal alien raped a 10-year-old girl in Ohio, probably nine when she got raped, leading to, to an abortion across state lines. I was told I should kill myself Delete my Twitter account and other things I can't print here by hundreds of trolls looking to retaliate against someone who won't swallow the media narrative. She said, before I started asking if this story was real or not, because of the poorly sourced original reporting and the political ramifications of its viral nature, no one in the repeater media was investigating who raped a 10-year-old child. All they did was repeat the vague reporting from the Indianapolis Star. Their only focus was on whether or not the child could get an abortion in Ohio and which Republican they could damage with awkward sound bites for the evening news. And it turned out that the original reporting was fake news because Ohio law would have allowed her to have the procedure under its emergency exception contrary to the Indianapolis Star's claims. Without the huge media attention my questions raised and the media frenzy that ensued to corroborate this claim, we might still not know that an illegal alien from Guatemala raped and impregnated a child. He may not have even been arrested or at least not this soon. Okay, then she embeds. Then she embeds the audio from the arraignment hearing from just two days ago, Wednesday morning, in Ohio. Because, again, Ohio was where the alleged crime 
took place. And it went something like this. We got about uh, about a three and a half minute clip. The charge is raping, felony of the first degree. La acusación es violación, un delito grave del primer grado. I want to play this for you because this is real. Okay? I mean, as much as we thought it was a whole made-up story, and now we understood why it wasn't made up, this is real. This guy's in court. Less than 48 hours ago. Under 13 years old. La víctima tiene menos de 13 años. Have you had adequate time to review the motion to hold the defendant without bail or bond? Have you had opportunity to review the motion to hold the defendant without bail or bond? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, sí, su señoría. All right, Mr. Meyer, if you'd like to proceed. Señor Fiscal, Señor Meyer, please proceed. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. The state is asking the court to hold Mr. Fuentes without bail or bond in this case. Sí, su señoría, lo está usted. La madre de la víctima. And what did she indicate? ¿Quién dijo ella? She indicated that her 10-year-old daughter was pregnant. Indicó que su hija de 10 años estaba embarazada. Um, at the time, was the daughter still pregnant? En el momento, ¿seguía embarazada la hija? Yes. Sí. Is that daughter still pregnant today? ¿Y sigue embarazada la hija? Hoy, no. Why not? ¿Por qué no? The victim points to went out of state to have a medical, uh, medically terminated pregnant abortion. La víctima fue llevado afuera del estado para una abortión uh, para terminar su embarazo medicamente. Do you know um, approximately when she had that abortion? ¿Y sabe cuándo ocurrió la abortión? The, the consultation was initiated on June 29th. La consultación se inició el 29 de junio. I believe the procedure was initiated on the 30th. Creo que el, el, el procedimiento se, se comenzó el 30 de junio. And the products of conception were picked up on the 2nd of July. Y los... Um, los hechos de, de la abortión se recogieron el 2 de julio de este año. Now, when you refer to the products of conception, do you, is that the aborted fetus? Cuando usted hace referencia a los productos de concepción, usted hace referencia al, al feto abortado, sí. Yeah, see, that's... Uh, the abortion folks always have to use euphemisms. They don't want to say unborn baby. They don't even want to say aborted fetus. Uh, products of conception. Is that uh, product of conception, is that currently available for DNA testing? Is this productos de concepción están disponibles para hacer pruebas de ANA? Yes, the products of conception were entered into evidence in the conscious property. Sí, esos productos de concepción se, se confiscaron y son... Um, And in what city and state did this abortion take place? In Indianapolis, Indiana. In Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, how did you proceed with your investigation of the rape from there? entonces, ¿cómo procedió con su investigación de la acusación de violación? 
Y quiero aclarar, usted o otros detectives de la CPD, el Departamento de Policía de Columbus. All right, so there is the uh, three-and-a-half-minute clip from Wednesday morning's arraignment of 27-year-old Gerson Fuentes, who police say confessed to raping the little girl. If she recently turned 10, she was 9 when she got pregnant. Maybe. Maybe. Because she was, I don't know, seven, eight weeks in, whatever. So... Megan Fox or PJ Media says, thank God it all happened the way it did. She says, I will take the arrows and the unfair characterizations of my reporting and the brigading on Twitter as a blessing because a child rapist was put behind bars. She says, I have walked with families through the process of reporting child rape to authorities. It almost never ends in an arrest within a month. In most cases, authorities do not believe the child and in many cases will often remove the child and give her to the abuser. Anyone claiming that this arrest was always going to happen doesn't know how the system works, especially when the rapist is an illegal alien in a sanctuary city. She says, so after a very hard day of being the target of a leftist mob that celebrated the rape of a child just so they could own me over my incorrect initial hypothesis that the child may not exist, things began to turn around. She said, Ann Coulter thanked me publicly for forcing the media to admit that an illegal alien raped the child. She also sent me some very encouraging private messages that I'm probably going to have framed and hung on my wall. Other conservative journalists are fighting back against the false narrative that the rabid left is pushing over this huge story, and we are winning. She said this morning, the attacks are dying down, and the focus is starting to go where it should. Who let this bad hombre into the country and wire leftists celebrating the rape of a kid to own the GOP. She says then, this morning after getting a full night of sleep that I haven't had in a week, Glenn Beck reached out and asked me to come on his radio show. What a thrill. He agrees with me that Without what I did in asking perfectly reasonable questions about the validity of a one-sourced story pushed by an abortion activist, this rapist might still be walking around freely preying on children in Ohio. So go ahead and do your worst, trolls. I'm proud of the questions I asked and of the result. I hope if this guy is convicted, he rots in a maximum security prison for the rest of his life. And she says, today makes me miss Rush Limbaugh even more than usual. He would have been so proud and loving every minute of it. I know he would have encouraged me and cheered me on from the golden EIB microphone. 
like he always did when I hit something big. I miss him so much, but I'm so glad that other giants in conservative media are circling the wagons and declaring war. Yeah, that is, uh, that's really heavy because uh, I think we all miss Rush. And we're reminded, we're reminded every once in a while about how much we miss him. And I'm reminded of how much I, I learned from him. Megan Fox says we need to help one another survive these attacks by the left. They care nothing about getting justice for raped children as long as there's a political battle to be won. How dare they criticize me for asking if this story is real, where is the rapist? Did they ever care to see someone locked up for this? I did, and I have the receipts to prove it. She says, I have kept a log of all the Freedom of Information Act requests I sent looking for this rapist and any investigation or reports of him since July 6th. And I will continue to find out why this child was placed in such danger near this illegal alien pedophile and why the doctor treating her used her for pro-abortion propaganda headlines. And I don't care. What anybody thinks about how I got to the truth that finally came out. She concludes, come at me, bro. I'm not going anywhere. So, what does it tell you? What does it tell you that the uh, the girl's mother appears to be defending the rapist. What does it tell you? So I'm looking at Megan Fox's pinned tweet over there on Twitter. And she says, July 8th, which is a week ago, she says, I was the only reporter calling out the media for ignoring a child rapist in their reporting. Proof. Not one media source was looking for evidence of this heinous crime to make sure law enforcement held the perp accountable until I pointed it out. And some idiot responded, LOL, wow, it really is all about you, isn't it? And Megan Fox says, nope. It's about a rapist and justice, but if I have to sit here and listen to false accusations, I'm going to post proof of what I actually said. Those who use this child did it for themselves and their abortion agenda. Amen, sister. That's right. Also, Megan Fox says Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita says he's investigating Dr. Caitlin Bernard. Yes, indeed. He was on with Jesse Waters on, I guess it would have been Tuesday evening, 
And he said, we're gathering the evidence as we speak, and we're going to fight this to the end, including looking at her licensure. If she failed to report in Indiana, it's a crime to not report, to intentionally not report. Well, now, Fox News said she did report, but, again, the article, the article, the very article in which they said she did report, says she listed the 27-year-old alleged illegal immigrant rapist as a minor in her report. So let's take a look. Let's go back to what Fox News is reporting here. So abortionist Bernard's lawyer, Kathleen Delaney, said in a statement to Fox News Digital, and I quote, My client, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, took every appropriate and proper action in accordance with the law and both her medical and ethical training as a physician. Okay, wait, wait. We're using the word ethical training about a woman who murders children for a living? Anyway, the lawyer continues. She says she followed all relevant policies, procedures, and regulations in this case just as she does every day to provide the best possible care for her patients, except for the half of them that she murders, you know. The lawyer continues. She has not violated any law, including patient privacy laws, and she has not been disciplined by her employer. We are considering legal action against those who have smeared my client, including Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita, and know that the facts will all come out in due time, unquote. The documents show abortionist Bernard performed a non-surgical abortion for a six-weeks pregnant 10-year-old girl of Mexican ethnicity on June 30th. But if she reported the 27-year-old alleged rapist was 17 years old, kind of uh, hard to imagine that she wasn't breaking some kind of law, right? Right? I mean, help me out here. Come on. That's just, uh, just messed up. One of the guys I follow over on Twitter goes by the uh, profile Meterbox, M-I-T-R-E, Meterbox. He says the mother didn't take her child to Indiana to get an abortion. The mother took her child to Indiana to hide an abortion because the mother's boyfriend is the father. Sure what it looks like. I hope the child has been removed from the home. I mean, usually... Usually, I'm the guy saying I hope Child Protective Services doesn't remove a child, but in a case like this, come on now. Come on. I mean, shouldn't uh, authorities be investigating the mother for 
possibility of aiding and abetting before and after? Come on now. I mean, statutory rape of a 10-year-old by the mother's boyfriend. If they could prove that's what happened, surely they should... uh, I mean, I think they should have removed the child already because you got the mother saying, oh, no, no, it's all lies. She says it's all lies, even though he's confessed. He's confessed, and she says it's all lies. Please tell me that Child Protective Services has rescued the child after the mother took her across state lines to allegedly try to hide the crime of her boyfriend by having the baby murdered. What do you want to bet the 10-year-old didn't want her baby murdered? You know, I mean, a 10-year-old is not... A 10-year-old can't make decisions like this. Oh, I know, I know. The liberals will say, well, she can make a decision. She wants to become a boy, right? Start taking puberty blockers at 10 years old. Yeah, they can do that. I've talked to people who counsel little girls whose parents forced them to get abortions after they were raped. And they've told me how traumatic it is for the little girls. The rape was bad enough, but having to deal with the fact that parents made them made them have an abortion. That's uh that leaves lifelong scars. That leaves lifelong scars. I was a little boy, um, six, seven years old, first, second grade. Um, we lived in Atlanta. And um, sometimes mom and dad would take me and my little brother over to play. Uh, they knew another couple who had a daughter about my age and took us over to play there. And... Um, one time my mother had to tell me that, um, unfortunately, the little girl's mother had drowned her in a bathtub. Imagine having to tell your six- or seven-year-old son something like that. And I was horrified and terrified. When I was an adult, my mother told me what led to it. Little girl's mother was pregnant with a second child, and the doctors had told the woman and her husband that this child was going to be deformed and wasn't going to make it, and they needed to abort. And the mother said, no, I don't want to abort. But the dad signed the paperwork to have the abortion done over the objections of his wife. And she just went mental after that. 
And so she told the police that she had drowned her daughter so she wouldn't have to go through what she went through, having an abortion forced on her. Atlanta, Georgia, early 60s. So um, you never know. You never know what's... uh, what traumatic things like that are going to do to people. I think my mother told me it happened at Grady Hospital. That sounds right. In Atlanta. Um... I was just as horrified and shocked as an adult when she told me what had happened as I was when I was six or seven years old and she told me that a friend of mine had been murdered by her own mother by drowning her in a bathtub. You just never know. Anyway, um, still to come on Information Overload Friday, why aren't U.S. public health agencies following the science on the China virus? And did Dr. Deborah Burks actually set out to destroy this country? There's a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about on information overload Friday on the Doc Washburn Show. Let me once again express how thankful we are to our advertisers. I want to mention a couple of them to you. They make it possible for us to do what we do. Like my friend Justin Minton, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton in Benton. Now, Justin's a former insurance adjuster, who left the insurance industry to become a private lawyer, founded the Minton Law Firm to help injured people fight against powerful insurance companies and corporations. And he has sure helped me out with the three automobile accidents I've been in since 2019. The Minton Law Firm has a great team of lawyers, including the 2016 Trial Lawyer of the Year and the 2016 Outstanding Young Lawyer of the Year. The insurance companies take Justin Minton and his team of lawyers seriously because they know they can and will take your case to trial if need be. So whether you want to go to trial or settle out of court, it's a really good idea to have a knowledgeable trial attorney on your side. Justin's team aims to bring justice to clients who've been injured and need somebody to stand up for them. No matter what the injury, Justin Minton, make sure the Minton Law Firm always works hard for you. Whether you're in a car wreck, hurt on the job, or you or a loved one is suffering from the carelessness of another, if you're in Arkansas... Justin Minton Law, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton and Benton, is here to help you. Just call the Minton Law Firm, 501-943-4195, or visit justinmintonlaw.com today. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. 
Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. Thanks so much again to our friends and doctors, our advertisers, Jr. and Tanya Crabtree, Arkansas Cervical Center. And my other friend, Justin Minton, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton and Benton, my attorney. So we come now to the to the whole situation with the Wu flu, with the China virus, as it were. Dr. Deborah Burks, Michael P. Singer. Over at um, Substack. Article entitled, Deborah Burks's Silent Invasion, A Guide to Destroying America from Within. If she did do it, this is how it would have happened. He says, part of the fun of reading Snake Oil, how Xi Jinping shut down the world, is that you get to put yourself in the dictator's shoes. In the book, Xi is an allegory for the Chinese Communist Party in the 21st century. Xi's lines break up the writing with dark humor, a satirical jab at Western elite's blasé attitude toward an advanced totalitarian regime with overtly manipulative goals. The book invites you to see through the bad guy's eyes And imagine just how easy it was to subvert the free world into totalitarianism using the response to a perfectly banal virus. And the book, of course, is written by Michael P. Singer. He says, alas, to that end, My book has been upstaged by the work of Deborah Burks, White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, one of the trifecta of three leading officials behind COVID lockdowns in the United States. Virtually every page of Deborah Burks's monstrosity of a book, Silent Invasion, reads like a how-to guide in subverting a democratic superpower from within, as could only be told through the personal account of someone who was on the front lines doing just that. Notably, 
Though Burks's memoir has earned relatively few reviews on Amazon, it's earned rave reviews from Chinese state media. A feat not shared even by far more popular pro-lockdown books, such as those by Michael Lewis and Lawrence Wright. The glowing response from Chinese state media should come as no, as no surprise, however, because every sentence of Deborah Burks's book reads like it was written by the Communist Chinese Party itself. Chapter 1 opens with what she claims was her first impression of the virus. She says, I can still see the words splashed across my computer screen on the early morning hours of January 3rd. Though we were barely into 2020, I was stuck in an old routine, waking well before dawn and scanning news headlines online. On the BBC site, one caught my attention. China pneumonia outbreak. Mystery virus probed in Wuhan. Michael B. Singer says, indeed, as recounted in Snake Oil, that BBC article, which was posted at approximately 9 a.m. Eastern, January 3rd, 2020, was the first in a Western news organization to discuss the outbreak of a new virus in Wuhan, China. Apparently, Burks was scanning British news headlines just as it appeared. What are the odds? Burks wastes no time in telling us where she got her philosophy of disease mitigation, recalling how she immediately thought Chinese citizens knew what had worked against SARS-1, masks and distancing. In her book, she says, government officials and citizens across Asia knew both the pervasive fear and the personal response that had worked before to mitigate the loss of life and the economic damage wrought by SARS and MERS. They wore masks. They decreased the frequency and size of social gatherings. Crucially, based on their recent experience, the entire citizenry and local doctors were ringing alarm bells loudly and early. Lives were on the line, lots of them. They knew what had worked before, and they would do it again. So Sanger says, Burks spends countless pages tut-tutting the Communist Chinese Party for its so-called cover-up of the virus, though Chinese state media apparently didn't mind as they gushed about her book anyway, which is funny because then she says this. On January 3rd, the same day the BBC piece ran, the Chinese government officially notified the United States of the outbreak. Bob Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, was contacted by his Chinese counterpart, George F. Gao. Singer says, Note, January 3rd is also the same day the hero whistleblower, Li Wenliang, was supposedly admonished by authorities for sending a WeChat message about a so-called cover-up of the outbreak. So on the same day Li was admonished, the head of China's CDC literally called U.S. CDC Director Robert Redfield to share the exact same information that Dr. Li supposedly shared. 
off to a strong start. But from here, Deborah Burks' abomination of a book only gets worse, much worse. A page later, she tells us how traumatized she still is at seeing all those videos of Wuhan residents collapsing and falling dead in January 2020 and praises the courageous doctor who shared them online. Here's a lengthy lengthy quote lengthy quote from Deborah Burks's book she says the video showed a hallway crowded with patients slumped in chairs some of the masked people leaned against the wall for support the camera didn't pan so much as zigzag while the chinese doctor maneuvered her smartphone up the narrow corridor My eye was drawn to two bodies wrapped in sheets lying on the floor amid the cluster of patients and staff, the doctor's colleagues, their face shields, and other personal protective equipment in place, barely glanced at the lens as she captured the scene. They looked past her as if at a harrowing future. They could all see and hope to survive. I tried to increase the volume, but there was no sound. My mind seamlessly filled that void, inserting the sounds from my past. Sounds from other wards, other places of great sorrow. I had been here before. I had witnessed scenes like this across the globe, in HIV-ravaged communities, when hospitals were full of people dying of AIDS before we had treatment, or before we ensured treatment to those who needed it. I had lived this, and it was etched permanently in my brain. The unimaginable, devastating loss of mothers, fathers, children, grandparents, brothers, sisters. Staring at my computer screen, I was horrified by the images from Wuhan, the suffering they portrayed, but also because they confirmed what I'd suspected for the last three weeks. Not only was the Chinese government underreporting the real numbers of the infected and dying in Wuhan and elsewhere, but the situation was definitely far more dire than most people outside that city realized. Up until now, I had been only reading or hearing about the virus. Now it had been made visible by a courageous doctor sharing this video online. Now, Michael P. Singer at this point says, As a reminder, Deborah Burks's book was published April 2022. But the videos Deborah Burks is recalling were all proven to be fake by the spring of 2020. In the next paragraph, Deborah Burks tells us how she grew even more determined after seeing that the Chinese had built a hospital in 10 days to fight the virus. Here's what she says. Dotting it were various pieces of earth-moving equipment, enough of them in various shapes and sizes that I briefly wondered if the photograph was of a manufacturing plant. Where the newly assembled machines were on display, quickly I learned that the machines were in Wuhan and that they were handling the first phase of preparatory work for the construction of a 1,000-bed hospital to be completed 
in just 10 days' time. The Chinese may not have been giving accurate data about the numbers of cases and deaths, but the rapid spread of this disease could be counted in other ways, including in how many Chinese workers were being employed to build new facilities to relieve the pressure on the existing and impressive Wuhan Health Service Centers. You build a 1,000-bed hospital in 10 days only if you're experiencing unrelenting community spread of a highly contagious virus that has eluded your containment measures and is now causing serious illness on a massive scale. Michael P. Singer again says the hospital construction again was proven to be fake by BuzzFeed News, no less, literally days after Chinese state media posted it. But two, two years later, Parks is still, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. They built a thousand-bed hospital in 10 days in China two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael P. Singer, Substack, says, just to recap, here we have Deborah Burks, the woman who did more than almost any other person in the United States to promote and prolong COVID lockdowns, silencing anyone who disagreed with her. To the incessant praise of mainstream media outlets telling us she had been inspired by all those images of Wuhan residents falling dead and constructing a hospital in 10 days and still didn't realize they were fake two years after they'd proven to be false. And that's just chapter one. Deborah Burks then spends hundreds of pages recounting her clandestine political maneuvers from the day she stepped foot in the White House to get as much of America as possible to stay in lockdown for as long as possible without making it look like a lockdown. Again, here's a quote from her book. She says, at this point, I wasn't about to use the words lockdown or shutdown. If I had uttered either of those in early March of 2020, after being at the White House only one week, the political non-medical members of the task force would have dismissed me as too alarmist, too doom and gloom, too reliant on feelings and not facts, they would have campaigned to lock me down and shut me up. Michael P. Singer says, Burks proudly recalls using flatten-the-curve guidance to manipulate President Trump's administration into consenting to lockdowns that were stricter than they realized. Again, quote from Burks's book. On Monday and Tuesday, while sorting through the CDC data issues, we worked simultaneously to develop the flatten the curve guidance I hoped to present to the vice president at week's end. Getting buy-in on the simple mitigation measures every American could take was just the first step leading to longer and more aggressive interventions. We had to make these palatable to the administration by avoiding the obvious appearance of a full Italian lockdown. At the same time, we needed the measures to be effective at slowing the spread, which meant matching as closely as possible what Italy had done, a tall order. We were playing a game of chess in which the success of each move was predicated on the one before it. 
Michael P. Singer says, never mind that this kind of manipulation by a presidential advisor is probably not legal. Deborah Burks doubles down, inadvertently admitting where that arbitrary number 10 came from for her guidance as to the size of social gatherings, while admitting her real goal was zero, no social contact of any kind anywhere. Another quote from Deborah Burks from her book. She says, I had settled on 10, knowing that even that was too many, but I figured that 10 would at least be palatable for most Americans, high enough to allow for most gatherings of immediate family, but not enough for large dinner parties and critically large weddings, birthday parties, and other mass social events. Similarly, if I had pushed for zero, which was actually what I wanted and what was required, this would have been interpreted as a lockdown, the perception we were all working so hard to avoid. Michael P. Singer again says, Deborah Burks divulges her strategy of using federal advisories to give cover to state governors to impose mandates and restrictions. Again, quote from Deborah Burks's book, The White House would encourage, but the states could recommend, or if need be, mandate. In short, we were handing governors and their public health officials a template, a state-level permission slip they could use to enact a specific response that was appropriate for the people under their jurisdiction. The fact that the guidelines would be coming from a Republican White House gave political cover, cover to any Republican governors skeptical of federal overreach. Michael P. Singer again says, Then Deborah Burks recalls with delight as her strategy left the, led the states to shut down one by one. Again, quoting for Deborah Burks's book, she says, The recommendations served as the basis for governors to mandate the flattening the curve shutdowns. The White House had handed down guidance, and the governors took that ball and ran with it. With the White House's, this is serious message, governors now had permission to mount a proportionate response, and one by one, other states followed suit. California was first, doing so on March 18. New York followed on March 20th. Illinois which had declared its own state of emergency on March 9th, issued shelter-in-place orders on March 21st. Louisiana did so on the 22nd. In relatively short order, by the end of March and the first week of April, there were few holdouts. The circuit-breaking, flattening-the-curve shutdown had begun. Michael P. Singer says all that's missing is the maniacal laugh in what may be the most damning quote of the entire U.S. response to COVID in one paragraph. Deborah Burks tells us that she had always intended two weeks to slow the spread as a lie and immediately one of those two weeks extended despite having absolutely, positively no data to show why that was necessary. Here's the quote from Deborah Burks's book. She says, No sooner had we convinced the Trump administration to implement our version of a two-week shutdown 
and I was trying to figure out how to extend it. 15 days to slow, slow the spread was a start, but I knew it would be just that. I didn't have the numbers in front of me yet to make the case for extending it longer, but I had two weeks to get them. However hard it had been to get the 15-day shutdown approved, getting another one would be more difficult by many orders of magnitude. Michael P. Singer says, this is one of several quotes in which Deborah Burks refers to, quote, our version, unquote, of a lockdown. Though she never makes it clear what the original version of a lockdown is. As a matter of fact, though Deborah Burks spends hundreds of pages boasting about her scorched earth crusade for lockdowns across America, she never once explains why she wanted this or why she felt it was a good idea. Other than, some, other than some brief asides about China's supposed success using social distancing during SARS-1, Burks's apparent plan to almost single-handedly destroy the world's primary democratic superpower is going swimmingly until she meets the book's leading antagonist, Dr. Scott Atlas. To Deborah Burks's disgust, Dr. Scott Atlas takes a strong stand for all the things she loathes the most. Things like human rights, democratic governance, and most of all, freedom. Deborah Burks lists Scott Atlas's so-called dangerous assertions. The next quote from her book, she says that schools could open anywhere without any precautions, neither masking nor testing, regardless of the status of the spread in the community, that children did not transmit the virus, that children didn't get ill, that there was no risk to anyone young, that long COVID-19 was being overplayed, that heart damage findings were incidental that comorbidities did not play a critical role in communities, especially among teachers, that merely employing some physical distance overcame the virus's ill effects, that masks were overrated and not needed, that the coronavirus task force had gotten the country into this situation by promoting testing, that testing falsely increased case counts in the United States in comparison with other countries, that targeted testing and isolation constituted a lockdown, plain and simple, and weren't needed. Michael P. Singer says that every word of Atlas's assertions was obviously 100% true, only made them all the more dangerous to Deborah Burks. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world, and nothing would derail the world's communist destiny faster than letting those self-evident truths spread freely. Again, quoting for Deborah Burks's book, she says, in particular, CNN's Sanjay Gupta was a key component of my strategy. He specifically spoke about a mild disease, another way to describe silent spread. I saw this as a sign that he got it. As a doctor himself, he could see what I was seeing, he could serve as a very good outside government spokesman, echoing my message 
that family members and others were in close contact with, pardon me, echoing my message that family members and others they were in close contact with could unknowingly bring the virus home, resulting in a catastrophic and deadly event. Again, Michael P. Singer. Michael P. Singer says, Deborah Burks frequently emphasizes her fixation with the concept of asymptomatic spread. In her mind, the less sick a person is, the more insidious that person is. Quoting again from Deborah Burks's book, asymptomatic, presymptomatic, and even mildly symptomatic spread are particularly insidious because with these, many people don't know they're infected. They may not take precautions or may not practice good hygiene, and they don't isolate. Michael P. Singer says, as Scott Atlas recalls in his own book, A Plague Upon Our House, Burks commented on the importance of testing asymptomatic people. She argued that the only way to figure out who was sick was to test them. She memorably exclaimed, that's why it's so dangerous. People don't even know they're sick. I felt myself looking around the room, wondering if I was the only one who had heard this. Michael P. Singer says, Burks spends roughly the next 150 pages of her book recalling her anguish as Dr. Scott Atlas thwarted her plans to keep America in a near-permanent state of lockdown. As Atlas recalls in his book, she threw a fit right there in front of everyone. As we stood near the door before leaving the Oval Office, she was furious, screaming at me, never do that again, and in the Oval I felt pretty bad because she was so angry. I'd had, I had absolutely no desire for conflict, but did she actually expect me to lie to the president just to cover up for her? I responded, sorry, but he asked me a question, so I answered it. Michael P. Singer says, indeed, Deborah Burks's memoir corroborates the testimony in Scott Atlas's book of the outsized role she played in bringing lockdowns in the United States to an end more than anything. This involved standing up to Deborah Burks, who, contrary to popular belief, did more than even Anthony Fauci to, to promote and prolong lockdowns across the United States. As Scott Atlas explains... In his book, Dr. Fauci held court in the public eye on a daily basis so frequently that many misconstrue his role as being in charge. However, it was really Dr. Burks who articulated task force policy. All the advice from the task force to the states came from Dr. Burks. All written recommendations about their on-the-ground policies were from Dr. Burks. Dr. Burks conducted almost all the visits to states on behalf of the task force. Michael B. Singer says, 
Unlike the vast majority of our leaders and institutions, Dr. Scott Atlas did not shrug this responsibility, and for that, our entire nation owes him a special thanks. I vividly recall reading Atlas's articles in early 2020, correctly predicting that the COVID-19 shutdown will cost Americans millions of years of life. A rare light in that dark dystopian period. And he links to it. He links to to Scott Atlas's article about that in, of all places, thehill.com. Sanger says, still, I don't want to give anyone in this story too much credit. How is it possible that the woman who did more than any other person to shut down the United States doesn't know that all those videos from Wuhan, China were fake? Two years after FBI Director Christopher Wray publicly stated on July 7th, 2020, quote, We have heard from federal, state, and even local officials that Chinese diplomats are aggressively urging support for China's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. Yes, this is happening at both the federal and state levels. Not that long ago, we had a state senator who was recently even asked to introduce a resolution supporting China's response to the pandemic, unquote. What has the the FBI been doing this whole time? As Dr. Scott Atlas recalls, seems seems laughingly related that she was frantically looking around as the usual outlandish nonsense was being put forth, knowing that I would have been the one to push back. Then she got to the point, Scott, we need to get rid of Burks. She is a disaster. She keeps saying the same things over and over. She's incredibly insecure. She doesn't understand what's going on. We need to eliminate her moving forward. Michael P. Singer says, well, no wonder Burks was insecure. She just spent the better part of a year in the White House orchestrating unprecedented crimes against humanity on her own people. These lockdowns ultimately killed tens of thousands of young Americans. Oh, he links. He links to an article about that. While failing to meaningfully slow the spread of the coronavirus everywhere they were tried, where, whether she did so wittingly or unwittingly, it's absolutely unseemly that no one around her put a stop to it. Atlas recalls being baffled as to why Deborah Burks had ever been appointed to her role in the first place, saying this. <clears throat> I also asked how she had been appointed. That seemed to be a bit of a mystery to everyone. I was told by Jared Kushner more than once, Dr. Burks is 100% mega. As if that should make all the other issues somehow less important. Secretary Azar denied appointing her during his stint running the task force. I was told by the Vice President's Chief of Staff, Mark Short, that Vice President Pence inherited her when he took over as chair of the task force. No one seemed to know. Michael Pixinger says, Jared Kushner's reaction is ironic given Burks's later admission that she had a pact with medical bureaucrats, Anthony Fauci, Robert Redfield, Stephen Hahn, and perhaps others, that all would resign if even one 
were removed by then-President Donald Trump. Democrats in Congress are now defending Deborah Birx from scrutiny for the role she played in lockdowns in the United States. As it turns out, Deborah Birx was not 100% MAGA. She wasn't even 10% MAGA. Now, I'm not saying Deborah Birx is an agent of the Communist Chinese Party. I'm just saying that if she was an agent for Xi Jinping's stated goal of gradually stripping the world of independent judiciaries, human rights, Western freedom, civil society, and freedom of the press, then every word of her book would read like that of silent invasion. If she did do it, this is how it would have happened. But in researching this prod, this topic for over two years, few things have made my hair stand on end more than the clues Deborah Burks gives about the man who did appoint her to her role. This man, who will be the subject of my next deep dive, is a little-known, clean-cut, Mandarin-fluent intelligence operative who arguably played a greater role than even Fauci or Burks in bringing China's totalitarian virus response to the United States, acting as a direct liaison between Chinese scientists and the White House on key items of pseudoscience, including asymptomatic spread, universal masking, and remdesivir, and his name is Matthew Pottinger. Now, I want to say something very serious here. Um, If you see, like I do, where this is going, I would just ask that you keep Michael P. Sanger in your prayers. Because there are some very powerful people in this world who do not want this message to get out. Um, And I'm not going to back down myself. But You know what happens to people who cross the globalists, the elite. I'm thinking of Seth Rich. I'm thinking of Julian Assange. I'm thinking of a number of people on the the Clinton list. I'm thinking of Jeffrey Epstein himself. Um, my Matthew Pottinger. That's an interesting name. So I just decided, well, you know, I wonder, I wonder if, um, he's got a Wikipedia page. Let's, let's take a look because, um, Michael P. Singer says, this is the next person I'm going to do a deep dive into. 
Okay. But um, just, uh, you know, just on the off chance that maybe we can glean something. Um, maybe, maybe it would be worth checking this Matthew Pottinger guy out to see what his deal is. Because if it's that sketchy, how Deborah Burks got appointed to this White House COVID-19 task force force in the first place. Um Yeah, then 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 then, then. And maybe we should take a look, right? I mean, so, so yes, let's uh, let's do that. Uh, Matthew Pottinger, Wikipedia. Here's what it says: He's an American former journalist and U.S. Marine Corps officer who served as the United States Deputy. National Security Advisor from September 22nd, 2019 till January 7th, 2021. Previously, the Asia Director on the National Security Council since 2017, his tenure was unusual among senior aides serving under President Trump for its length. Given an administration marked by high turnover, Pottinger worked to develop the Trump administration's policies toward China. He submitted his resignation on the afternoon of January 6, 2021, left the White House the following morning, yeah, I would be fascinated I can't wait to see Michael P. Singer's deep dive on this guy. Let's see what Wikipedia has about him. Okay, Matthew Pottinger is the son of author and former Department of Justice official Jay Stanley Pottinger, educated Milton Academy, schoolmate and childhood friend of uh, John Avalon. Pottinger graduated from the University of Massachusetts Amherst with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Chinese studies, is fluent in Mandarin. Before he joined the U.S. Marine Corps, Pottinger worked as a journalist for Reuters between 1998 and 2001, then moved to the Wall Street Journal until his retirement from journalism in 2005. For four years, he was a regular guest on the John Batchelor radio show, that's a late-night radio show on WABC in New York. His stories won awards from the Society of Publishers in Asia. He covered a variety of topics, including the SARS epidemic, the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami, 
In the latter assignment, he met U.S. Marines and was inspired by their courage. He spent seven years reporting in China. He did, huh? He did, huh? Okay. So, uh, Michael P. Singer is is the one saying that uh, Matthew Pottinger is the one who put this awful woman, Deborah Burks, in the uh, in the White House. Says a lot, doesn't it? So, um, we'll, uh, we'll follow this closely. That's a big deal. By the way, Michael P. Singer is an attorney and author of Snake Oil, How Xi Jinping Shut Down the World. And he reports regularly over at Substack the uh, latest article I just shared with you. Is entitled Deborah Burks's Silent Invasion, A Guide to Destroying America from Within. If she did do it, this is how it would have happened. Well, if she did do it, I wonder. I wonder who knew that she was going to do it. Know what I'm saying? If she did do it, I wonder who knew that she was going to do it. I guarantee you Donald Trump didn't know. Know what I'm saying, Holmes? So... I mean, anyway. Okay, well, having said that, no, I, I, yeah, I guess I should check. Having said that, you know what time it is, boys and girls. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you in part by RedRiverYourWay.com, Red River Your Way. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door. Anywhere. Anywhere. In the continental United States. All right. So today's tweet of the day, I don't know. I can't tell. I can't tell if this is a parody website or a legit news website. It's something called Daily Loud, and they're reporting... NYPD. 
are legally now allowed to smoke marijuana and not be tested for it. So I can just imagine. Uh, yes, sir, officer, is there a problem? Uh, license, registration, and insurance, please. Uh, yes, sir. Um, just reaching for license, registration, and insurance in the glove compartment? Uh, dude, that's cool. Okay, here it is. License, registration, and insurance. Okay, sir, uh, are you aware of uh, why I pulled you over? Uh, no, sir, officer. I, I was hoping you would tell me, though. <laughs> Dude, I was hoping you knew, man, because I've already forgot. Hello! That's your, uh, that's your tweet of the day, brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental U.S. All right, I, I, I've been saying to you, got a story about um, why the U.S. public health agencies are not following the science according to officials themselves. And this story is over at commonsense.news. And the authors are Dr. Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins professor and public policy researcher, member of the National Academy of Medicine, who writes for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, also author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Price We Pay. Also, Dr. Tracy Beth Hogue, consultant epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health and PMNR physician in Northern California, mom of four and Danish-American dual citizen. Article entitled, Officials Say U.S. Public Health Agencies Aren't Following the Science, subtitled, People Are Getting Bad Advice and We Can't Say Anything. So here's what they say. The calls and text messages are relentless. On the other end are doctors and scientists at the top levels of the NIH, the FDA, the CDC. They are variously frustrated, exasperated, and alarmed about the direction of the agencies to which they have devoted their careers. One senior FDA official lamented, It's like a horror movie. I'm being forced to watch and I can't close my eyes. People are getting bad advice, and we can't say anything. Now, that particular FDA doctor was referring to two recent developments inside the agency. First, how with no solid clinical data, the FDA authorized COVID vaccines for infants and toddlers including those who already had COVID, and second, the fact that just months before the FDA bypassed their external experts to authorize booster shots for young children. That FDA doctor is hardly alone at the NIH. Doctors and scientists complain to us about low morale and lower staffing. The NIH's Vaccine Research Center has had many of its senior scientists leave over the last year, including the director, deputy director, and chief medical officer, the NIH's Vaccine Research Center has no leadership right now. Suddenly, 
there's an enormous number of jobs opening up at the highest level positions. According to what one NIH scientist told us, the people who spoke to us would only agree to be quoted anonymously, citing fear of professional repercussions, of course. The CDC has experienced a similar exodus. One high-level official at the CDC told us there's been a large amount of turnover. Morale is low. Things have become so political. So what are we there for? Another CDC scientist told us, I used to be proud to tell people I work at the CDC. Now I'm embarrassed. Well, why are they embarrassed? In short, bad science. But the longer answer that the heads of their agencies are using weak or flawed data to make critically important public health decisions, that such decisions are being driven by what's politically palatable to people in Washington or to the Biden administration, and that they have a myopic focus on one virus instead of overall health. Nowhere has this problem been clearer or the stakes higher than on official public health policy regarding children and COVID. First, they demanded that young children be masked in schools. On this score, the agencies were wrong. Compelling studies later found schools that masked children had no different rates of transmission and for social and linguistic development, children need to see the faces of others. Next came school closures. The agencies were wrong, and catastrophically so. Poor and minority children suffering hearing loss with an 11-point drop in math scores alone and a 20% drop in math pass rates. There are dozens of statistics of this kind. Then they ignored natural immunity. Wrong again. The vast majority of children have already had COVID, but this has made no difference in the blanket mandates for childhood vaccines and now by mandating vaccines and boosters for young, healthy people. With no strong supporting data, these agencies are only further eroding public trust. One CDC scientist told us about her shame and frustration about what happened to American children during the pandemic. She said CDC failed to balance the risks of COVID with other risks that come from closing schools. Learning loss, mental health exacerbations were obvious early on, and those worsened as the guidance insisted on keeping schools virtual. CDC guidance worsened racial equity for generations to come. It failed this generation of children. An FDA official put it this way, said, I can't tell you how many people at the FDA have told me I don't like any of this, but I just need to make it to my retirement. Right now, internal critics these agencies are focused on one issue above all. Why did the FDA and the CDC issue strong blanket recommendations for COVID vaccines in children? Three weeks ago, the CDC vigorously recommended mRNA COVID vaccines for 20 million children under five years old. 
Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, declared that the mRNA COVID vaccine should be given to everyone six months or older because they are safe and effective. The trouble is that this sweeping recommendation was based on extremely weak, inconclusive data provided by Pfizer and Moderna. Let's start with Pfizer. Using a three-dose vaccine in 992 children between the ages of six months and five years, Pfizer found no statistically significant evidence of vaccine efficacy. Let that sink in. In the subgroup of children aged six months to two years, the trial found that the vaccine could result in a 99% lower chance of infection, but that they also could have a 370% increased chance of being infected. In other words, Pfizer reported a range of vaccine efficacy so wide that no conclusion could be inferred. No reputable medical journal would accept such sloppy and incomplete results with such a small sample size. More to the point, these results should have given pause to those who are in charge of public health. Referring to Pfizer's vaccine efficacy in healthy young children, one high-level CDC official whose expertise is in the evaluation of clinical data joked, you can inject them with it or squirt it in their face and you'll get the same benefit. Moderna's results, they conducted a study of on 6,388 children with two doses, were not much better. Against asymptomatic infections, they claimed a very weak vaccine efficacy of just 4% in children aged six months to two years. They also claimed an efficacy of 23% in children between two and six years old, but neither result was statistically significant. Against symptomatic Infections, Moderna's vaccine did show efficacy that was statistically significant, but the efficacy was low. 50% in children aged 6 months to 2 years and 42% in children between 2 and 6 years old. Then there's the matter of how long a vaccine gives protection. We know from data in adults that it's generally a matter of months, but we have no such data for young children. A CDC physician added, It seems criminal that we put out the recommendation to give mRNA COVID vaccines to babies without good data. We really don't know what the risks are yet, so why push it so hard? A high-level FDA official felt the same way, said, The public has no idea how bad this data really is. It would not pass muster for any other authorization. And yet, the FDA and the CDC pushed it through. That slap in the face of science may explain why only 2% of parents of children under age 5 have chosen to get the COVID vaccine. And 40% of parents in rural areas say their pediatricians did not recommend the COVID vaccine for their child. This isn't the first time the COVID vaccine's recommendations based on scant evidence have been pushed through these agencies, most recently back in May. The lack of clinical evidence for booster shots in young people created a stir. 
at the FDA. The White House promoted it hard, even before FDA regulators had seen any data. Once they saw the data, they weren't impressed. It showed no clear benefit against severe disease for people under 40 years old. The FDA's two top vaccine regulators, Dr. Marion Gruber, director of the FDA's vaccine office, and her deputy director, Dr. Philip Krauss, quit the agency last year over political pressure to authorize vaccine boosters in young people after their departure. They wrote scathing commentaries explaining why the data did not support a broad booster authorization, arguing in the Washington Post, of all places, that the push for boosters for everyone could actually prolong the pandemic, citing concerns that boosting based on an outdated variant could be counterproductive. A CDC scientist told us this about the issue. Quote, it felt like we were a political tool, unquote. That insider at the CDC went on to explain that he got vaccinated early but chose not to get boosted based on the data. Ironically, the person was unable to go on a trip with a group of parents because proof of being boosted was required. The person said, I asked for someone to show me the data. They said the policy was based on the CDC recommendation. As one NIH scientist told us, there's a silence, an unwillingness for agency scientists to say anything. Even though they knew that some of what's being said out of the agency is absurd. Now that was a theme. We heard over and over again. People felt like they couldn't speak freely, even internally within their agencies. An FDA staffer told us, you get labeled based on what you say. If you talk about it, you'll suffer. I'm convinced. Another person at the FDA added, if you speak honestly, you get treated differently. And so they remain quiet, speaking to each other in private or in text groups on Signal. By the way, if you don't know about the Signal app, let me just tell you about it real quickly, and I'll get right back to the article. A couple of months ago, I had two attorneys tell me the same day. Two attorneys who didn't even know each other. Doc, you need to download the Signal app. Okay, what is it? It's not social media. Have you ever felt like you needed to talk to somebody face-to-face? You didn't want to talk about something very, shall we say, um, Confidential over the phone. Okay, that's what the Signal app is for. It is so encrypted, it's impossible to hack. You can talk to somebody over the phone on the Signal app knowing there's no way anybody can overhear you and no way anybody can hack into it. Do a conference call on the Signal app. You can text somebody on the Signal app. Do a conference text on the Signal app, and there's no possible way. They tell me that anybody can hack it. So, But if you download the Signal app onto your cell phone and you don't give it access to your address book, it won't work because that's the way that, you know, it works. Anyway, back to the article over at commonsense.news. One subject these doctors and scientists feel passionately about 
but feel they cannot bring up is natural immunity. Why, they wonder, are we insisting on immunizing children who, have already, who already have some immunity to the disease due to having contracted COVID already? As of February, 75% of children in the U.S. already had natural immunity from prior infection. It could easily be over 90% of children today, given how ubiquitous Omicron has been since then. The CDC's own research shows that natural immunity is better than vaccinated immunity. And a recent New England Journal of Medicine study from Israel has questioned the benefits of vaccinating previously infected persons. Many countries have long credited natural immunity towards vaccine mandates, but not the U.S. In this, the leaders of these American health agencies made the U.S. an international outlier in how it treats children. Sweden never offered vaccination to children under 12. Finland limits COVID vaccines to children under 12 who are at high risk. The Norwegian Institute of Public Health has appropriately stated that some children may benefit, but previous infection offers as good of protection as a vaccine against reinfection. Denmark announced on June 22nd its recommendation to vaccinate any children under age 16 was a mistake. Soren Brostrom, head of the Danish Ministry of Health, said the vaccinations were not predominantly recommended for the child's sake, but to ensure pandemic control. It is statistically impossible for everyone who works inside of our health agencies to have 100% agreement about such a new and knotty subject. Yeah, it's got some knots in it, all right. The fact that there is no public dissent or debate can only be explained by the fact that they are, or at least feel that they are, being muzzled at the FDA, the CDC, the NIH. It is an ancient moral requirement of our profession of our profession to speak up when we believe questionable treatments are being proposed. It is also good for the public. Imagine, for example, a world in which those scientists who suggested that masking for children and school lockdowns were worse for public health were not smeared but instead debated. The official public health response to COVID has undermined the public's belief in public health itself. This is a terrible outcome with potentially disastrous consequences. For one thing, Because of these sloppy and politicized policies, we run the risk of parents rejecting routine vaccines for their children, ones we know are safe, effective, and life-saving. The leaders of the CDC, the FDA, and the NIH should welcome internal discussion, even dissension, based on the evidence. Silencing physicians is not following the science. Less absolutism and more humility by the men and women running our public health agencies would go a long way in rebuilding public trust. That's uh, Dr. Marty McCary, professor of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, author of the book The Price We Pay, and medical advisor to Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, and Dr. Tracy Beth Hogue, epidemiologist affiliated with the Florida Department of Health, who has published research on COVID-19 and schools in the CDC's journal 
MMWR. And their article over at commonsense.news is entitled, U.S. Public Health Agencies Aren't Following the Science, Officials Say. You know, I, uh, I try to give you info that um, you're probably not going to get other places. I try to share stuff with you that we'll probably get most radio talk shows fired. I know I wasn't allowed to uh, question the efficacy of vaccines when I was still working for Cumulus Media, the second biggest radio company in America. I wasn't allowed to say the election was stolen. I mean, but I'm free now. I'm free now. And as much as I would like to get back on the radio, I don't want to ever give up that freedom. So um, if God opens the door, we'll be back on the radio. And if not, well, I mean, I'll keep doing the podcast either way. But again, I'm so thankful. So thankful to my, uh, my advertisers, my friends, Dr. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Crabtree, at Arkansas Upper Cervical Center. Uh, Justin Minton, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton and Benton, attorney. Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones Financial. Mitch Ward at Red River Your Way. I'm just so thankful that they make it possible for me to do this show five days a week. You've been listening to episode 194 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. Well, that's the way it is. Friday, July 15th, 2022.